So who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? When you think about the, the person of Jesus, what do you think of? What's your mental image? Do you see him as a, a teacher? Do you picture him on the Sermon on the Mount, just, you know, preaching? Do you, do you think of him as a, as a holy man? Maybe, maybe you think of the cross and the resurrection. What, what, is, what does Jesus look like in your mind? I want you to think about that. What does he act like? How well do you know the guy? Who is Jesus to you? I ask these questions because today we're beginning a new sermon series called Moments with Jesus, and I hope, I hope it's going to be really useful to us as a series to know our Savior a bit better. We're going to be looking at five very specific moments from the the ministry of Jesus that give us a glimpse at who he is. Some of these moments are going to focus on aspects of his character like his love and his compassion. Others are going to focus on some, maybe some different things like his uh, prophetic edginess or his, his uh, divinity. We're going to look at these different angles, these different aspects of who he is. And, and again, my hope is that this would help us grow, not just in our head knowledge about Jesus, but that we would grow in our relationship with him, that we would grow in our understanding of who he is and, and our passion and our desire to be more like him in our lives. So that's what I'm hoping will do over these next five weeks. I really want us to try and inhabit these stories. Most of them are pretty short. I want us to, to dig in and try to put ourselves there so that we can change. Well, today we're going to look at the story of how Jesus calls one of his 12 disciples to follow him. It's the story of the call of Matthew. And uh, as you see, as you'll see, Matthew is a pretty unexpected person for Jesus to call. So, Please grab a Bible, turn with me to, uh, it's going to be Matthew 9, verse 9, which will be page 806 in the House Bibles in the seat in front of you. If you're watching online, I have absolutely no idea what page number it is. You're just going to have to look it up, and it is going to be to the right of the middle in the Bible, and you'll just keep going, you'll find it. Uh, Or there's also an index in the front which is also useful. Uh, Before we read scripture, if you wouldn't mind, I just want to pray before we uh, open the word of God. So, Father God, in these moments as we, as we spend time with you, I pray that we would hear your voice clearly. I pray, Father, that as we, as we yet again meet Jesus and come to know your Son, I pray that we would be changed in the process, that we would not leave this moment uh, the same that we were when we entered it. Father, would your Holy Spirit speak? And I pray for myself that as I speak, that I would just disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. Let that be so, Father, as we listen to your voice. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's read this story, and then we'll, we'll dig into it. Uh, this is taking place, by the way, on the, on the edge of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up, and he followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. 
All right, so that's the story. That is the call of Matthew. Now, it's a pretty simple story, but there's actually quite a bit to dig into here, so let's talk about it. We have to start by talking about tax collectors. Uh, What are tax collectors in that time and that day, and how does that play into this story? Well, first of all, This is kind of, you know, what is death and taxes are the two common things of all human experiences, right? Nobody likes paying taxes. Raise your hand if you love paying taxes. I see no hands. So nobody likes it. And frankly, being someone whose job it is to collect other people's hard-earned income is never going to be a popular job. And I apologize if any of you work for like the IRS or something. I know it's got to be tough to, to be in that kind of a job. But, but... Back in those days, back in Jesus' days, there were actually some additional reasons why people would not like tax collectors at all. Uh, One of them you may be familiar with, and it's the idea that back in those days, it was pretty common for tax collectors to skim a little bit off the top for themselves. They'd line their own pockets. You see, they kept the books. They decided they could tell people how much they owed. And so if they wanted to add just a little bit to kind of, you know, uh, wet their own beak a little bit on the, on, the, on the take, they could do that. And nobody really had much power to push back against that. Now, we don't know. We have no direct indication that Matthew himself did that in Scripture. So we don't know if he was corrupt. But it was a pretty common thing back then. And there is a reason that you see the phrase, tax collectors and sinners, mushed together all the time. It was a pretty common understanding that tax collectors, yeah, they're pretty much the the scum of the earth, just like all those other sinners, those really bad people, all right? That was how people understood them. Um, I think the fact that that the New Living Translation uses the word scum in verse 11 is actually pretty accurate, because that's how people felt. But there was another reason, probably a deeper reason, why people did not like tax collectors, And it was actually because in that time, they were kind of seen as traitors, as traitors. And I'll explain why. Uh, In that time, uh, the Roman Empire was really beginning to to establish itself around the world. And where this took place in the city of Capernaum, it was actually a significant uh, province right on the border of two different Roman-established provinces. And like I said, this is at the, at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're trying to picture what Matthew was doing day to day, I like to think that he was, I don't know, something of a customs officer. He was, you know, maybe, maybe at the docks and he's helping to, to determine what people are going to, what, what are the duties that people are going to have to pay to move things from one of those provinces to the other. Now, the reason, apart from paying taxes, the reason why this was a big deal is because these two provinces, where where Capernaum was on the border, they were ruled by some pretty ruthless guys. Herod Antipas ruled one of them, and Herod Philip, his half-brother, ruled the other. They were both sons of Herod the Great, and they, were, uh, they, they weren't entirely under Roman control, but these guys were not friends of the everyday average Israelite. You see, in this time, uh, there was a real revolutionary fervor in Israel. People, people were, there were constantly these revolts and these insurgencies, and, and these two rulers, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, were constantly trying to squash the rebellion, and they were, I mean, it was basically like Star Wars, right? They're kind of, kind of trying to squash the rebellion, and, and they're executing insurgents and these freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on your point of view, but they were constantly murdering and executing these people uh, who Israelites would, would normally champion as people that were fighting for them. And by the way, John the Baptist, you guys know about John the Baptist? He was the one who kind of prepared the way for Jesus. Well, Herod Antipas was the one who executed him, took off his head because he didn't like some of the things he was saying. So these guys are not great. Nobody likes them. 
And these are the guys that Matthew is working for. So you could kind of picture, again, it's taking place at the docks. This mental image came to me. Imagine America, 1700s, and uh, Matthew's kind of like an American guy who's collecting tax for uh, tea shipments for the British in the Boston Harbor, right? This is like recipe for getting tarred and feathered. Whatever they did back in those days, I don't know about tar and feathering, but, but nobody liked a tax collector in those days. It was a time of rebellion, of revolution, and Matthew's working for the bad guys. He's working for the bad guys. So that is Matthew probably, possibly skimming off the top. Uh, Matthew's definitely working for the enemy. He is a guy that no upstanding, patriotic, religious Israelite would want anything to do with. All right? That's, that's who Matthew was. Nobody wants to be associated with a guy like him. And this is the guy that Jesus calls to be a part of his inner circle. Just stop and think about that for a second. This is the guy that Jesus wants to follow him and be one of his closest associates. And not just that, not just calling them, calling him. This is the guy that Jesus wants to eat with. Now, this doesn't really register for us today because we don't really think about food in these terms. But in that day, in Jesus's day, if you were going to dine at someone's home, it carried a lot of weight. It was like saying, I want to be associated with this person. I want their reputation to affect my reputation. And so the fact that he would eat with Matthew was a significant statement to anybody looking on. And let's not forget, it tells us, it tells us uh, in verse 10 that he wasn't just eating with Matthew, he was meeting with what? Many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Try to picture this. Remember, we're, we're trying to inhabit these stories. Try to picture this, this party, this, this meal that Jesus is having. Again, these sinners are not particularly known for being religious uh, rule followers, are they? Right? So I'm picturing this party. It doesn't say this in the text, but I'm picturing people are getting drunk. There's shady stuff going on. I bet members of the Capernaum Mafia were there, if there was such a thing. Like Jesus is hanging out with, with the scum of the earth. He's hanging out with the... the the good-for-nothing bad guys. What is he thinking? What is he thinking? Why would he want to be associated with this? This, this rabble, this riffraff? Well, that's exactly what the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, that's what they were wondering too. And they ask him, they, they, they say to, to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher want to eat or be associated with such scum? Again, what's he thinking? I don't know if he overheard this or if a disciple told them that they asked this, but he responded to them, and I love this, in verse 12. He said this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Now, this is a great line. Uh, It's like a, a great zinger, right? Essentially, he's saying, look, if I've got the ability to heal the sick, physically sick, emotionally sick, spiritually sick, then why wouldn't I go to the people who need it? And these people need it. (laughs) Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do, right? This is like a a sick burn, right? Real quickly, he gets to to the heart of it. But he's also doing something kind of subtle here. He's not just talking about himself. He's also, in a way, he's pointing his finger back at the Pharisees. You see, their whole mentality was purity and righteousness. If we can, you know, break free of Rome's grasp, it'll happen through purity and righteousness and following the law. And you know what? Ironically, they're right. 
they're right in the time that, that what Israel needed was to be free of sin and to be broken free of the, 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 the slavery to sin and death. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. But they, they were right about that, but they were wrong about how they were going about it. Yeah, yeah, Israel needed to be pure, but it wasn't going to happen by the people like the Pharisees who had the knowledge and the, the know-how of what God intended for the world it, for them to just be isolated from all the people who needed it. And Jesus is saying, you guys are, are, are not with the people who need the, the cure that you so uh, earnestly claim to have. They're like, the, the Pharisees are like a, a group of doctors, right? Just educated, uh, wearing the, the lab coats, a bunch of, bunch of well-educated doctors all huddling in a corner saying, ew, a sick person. <laughs> That's not how doctors work. That's not how they should work. And Jesus is saying, you guys are doing exactly that. Which is why he continues in verse 13. He says this, and I love this. These guys are like extreme Bible nerds. They know the Bible. And he says, I want you to go and learn the meaning of this scripture. And he says, go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Show mercy, not offer sacrifices. <clears throat> He's quoting here the Greek version of Hosea 6.6. 6. This is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And it's the Greek version. But in Hebrew, that passage has a really key word in it. That word that, that Jesus translates or says mercy, in Hebrew, it's the word chesed. And I know I'm butchering the pronunciation, but chesed, which means unfailing love or, or uh, devotion or loyalty. It, it's actually a pretty hard, difficult word to translate into English. But that is what the original passage in Hebrew says. I want you to offer chesed, not, not uh, sacrifices. Now this word chesed, it is used to in the Old Testament hundreds of times to describe the kind of love that God has for humanity. This is the love that he has for us. It's, it's a love that endures despite our failures. It's, it's faithful despite our shame. It's loyal despite our sin. This is why the psalm writers are constantly talking about the unfailing love of God. They're using this word chesed because it describes his love. It is a it's a selfless kind of love. That's the love that God has. And in that verse, in Hosea 6, God is saying, that love that I have, that's the love that I want you to have for others. I don't want all your, all your religious observance. That's not what matters. What matters is that you love others the way I love you. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, I want you to go figure that out. Go chew on that one because you've missed it. Now, how can Jesus say this? How can he say this to them, these religious leaders? Well, he can say it because chesed, unfailing love, that is the exact kind of love that he shows to everybody else. That's how he shows to, that's what he shows to everybody. Unfailing love, mercy, grace. That's the love that he lives out. He is a living embodiment of chesed, of Hosea 6.6. 6. It's the love that he shows to Matthew unfailing love. I'll tell you, there's a reason that this brief story of the call of Matthew shows up in three of our four Gospels. This, this story is powerful because it gives us a glimpse into the character of Jesus, of who he is, in a way that goes way deeper than just teacher or holy man. Like, think about this. 
All right, Jesus was, was a good guy, right? He was holy. He was godly. He, he's a rabbi who's there to teach everybody. He's God himself. So he has every single right in the world to just walk around, you know, hovering off the ground with a halo on and not get anywhere close to any kind of sin that might corrupt him or anything like that. Nobody would bat an eye if, if the God of the universe wanted to stay away, as far away as he could from, from evil and darkness. But instead, what does he do? What does he do? He gets close to the corrupt. He shares his meals with the disreputable. And he invites into his inner circle those who have no right to be there. No right at all. People who haven't earned it. People who don't deserve it. Who would be, who would be a better fit just about anywhere else. That's what Jesus does. And he does it all, again, because he is the perfect embodiment of God's unfailing love of God's mercy, of God's grace. I want to boil this story down for you real quick. Jesus does not call perfect, godly people to follow him. Jesus calls the broken. Jesus calls the broken. Which is why there on the the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus spots Matthew this tax-collecting scum, and he says, that's the one I want. Follow me. That's why he says it. Now, the other gospel accounts make a bigger deal of this, but it says, essentially, Jesus dro- I mean, Matthew just drops everything he's doing. He walks away from his tax-collecting for good. He's just done. Is that really much of a surprise when you think about what he just experienced? He was called Not after he dealt with his shame and brokenness, but right in the middle of it. Follow me. Now, I don't do this often, but I need to take a a bit of a sidebar here and tell you a story from my own life. And I mean, I tell stories from my life, but I don't take this long to tell stories because I don't want this to be about me. But in this moment... I need to tell you a story because when I talk about all of this, Jesus calling the broken, I want you to understand that when I'm talking about this, I'm not speaking in theological uh, theories or these ideas that are out there. I'm speaking from my own personal experience. I can resonate a lot with the story of the calling of Matthew. And so let me tell you the story of my call to ministry because I really believe that it connects deeply with what is going on in this story. Uh, so this, this happened back in 2005. I'll tell you a little bit about my time living in Kenya. Uh, by the way, I, I have told this story before, but it was, I looked it up. It was in a sermon in 2014. Uh, so for those, all three of you who happen to have been there at that time, bear with me. You're going to hear this story again. But so it was 20, 2005. I was uh, an intern with Nairobi Chapel. That's our partner church in Kenya. And I lived there for the whole year interning with them. It was a pivotal year in my life, changed everything for me. Uh, because when I came into that year, I came into it in a really dark place. Really dark place. And it's honestly by God's grace that I even got myself there. I was cynical. I was depressed. I was angry. I was confused. I was lost. I was, I was just completely aimless and I did not know what my life was going to be. I didn't feel like I had much worth at all. But I got to Kenya and I I don't know, maybe some of you have experienced this. I kind of had this, well, what's the worst that could happen attitude. 
anything that I wanted to do, I could try it and like, I don't know, worst case scenario, I'll go back and live in my parents' basement again, go back home. So why not give things a try? And in that case, working with Nairobi Chapel, I thought, I'm going to try out some stuff with my faith or with my walk with Jesus and just see what sticks. And one of the things I thought I would do is, let me, let me see if I can understand some of my own sins and brokenness and see if there's anything in my heart that needs to be dealt with so that I can be perfect, right? I thought, let me just take a look and see if there's anything there. And so we had to go on these, these, as interns, we had to go on these personal spiritual retreats where we'd go away for two days with nothing but a Bible, a notebook, and a pen. And that's like a recipe for boredom uh, because like, what are you supposed to do? So I decided, all right, I'm going to try to deal with whatever sin is left over in my life that I need to deal with. And so I decided I'm going to write a list of any unconfessed sins or sin struggles or addictions that I haven't quite mopped up yet. So I began writing, and I'm sitting in a little garden in the middle of, of Kenya. I'm writing, uh, keep writing, and oh, don't forget about that. I lied about that one, and oh, there was that sin, and oh, I forgot it. Yeah, I'm still kind of struggling with that addiction and that one. And then I turned the page, and I kept writing, and I said, well, there's that one too. And I kept writing and kept writing. I had never, until that moment, I had never seen all of my sin and mess and junk and brokenness in one place before. Because I had done what guys are often really good at doing. I had compartmentalized everything. I had put in every little, little sin in my life or addiction, I had put in a nice little tidy box that if I ever wanted to think about it, I could pull it off the shelf and say, well, I'm not that bad. Put it right on back and keep on living. But for the first time, I saw it all listed out right in front of me and I couldn't deny it. And guys, it bowled me over and it led me to feel, well, frankly, shame. Shame at how broken I was, at how, how, how deceived I had been to think that I had things together. It was shocking. And one of the things I decided to do, and this isn't really as much a part of the story, but it is, I think it's important. I decided, again, what's the worst that could happen? I need to confess all this stuff. I need to get it all off my chest. And so I thought, who are the people who know me best in the world that I could confess these sins to? And so I thought, well, my parents— they know about as much about, it, about me as possible. And so I decided in 2005, and they're sitting right over here, I decided that in 2005, I was going to make an international phone call to my parents in Indianapolis. And I called them and I told them every single thing on that list that I had made. And I am sorry, mom, especially. And I'm also sorry, dad. I know that this was not exactly the ideal way to do that. And so for future reference, learn from my mistake. Not the, I, not the best way to, to confess your sins, but I did it. I did it, and it, I felt free. I was a clean slate. Like, what's the worst that could happen? It truly changed me. However, what that whole experience did is it filled me with a level of, of, of shame out of the recognition of my own brokenness. I was very aware of how little I had to offer especially in ministry, especially to God. And I was pretty convinced, okay, I get it. God's not really going to use me for much. That was the, the narrative that had begun in my head. I was pretty clear on that. My shame was pretty much defining me. Until a few months after that moment in the garden, a few months after that phone call, where I, I was on a, a retreat with some of my Kenyan friends and coworkers, and I was at, sitting around a bonfire, and one of the pastors I was working with, Pastor Simon, he... he said, Barry, can you come over here for a minute? And he pulled me aside and he said, Barry, can I share a prophecy that I have for you? And I was like, okay. I, I was not very familiar with that as a practice. And I was like, sure. And he said, Barry, the other day I was praying for you and 
I saw you as a, a basket full of every different kind of fruit. And people were all gathering around the basket and they were taking the fruit and they were eating it and they were laughing and they were filled with joy. And he said, Barry, I think God wants to use you to bring life to many people. And then he prayed for me. And I, in that moment, I, I was kind of stunned and I walked off into the darkness and I sat down by a tree and I had to try to reconcile what he was telling me. If that was true, it didn't make any sense at all. Because on one hand, I had all of my brokenness. I had that list of sins. I had the, 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 just the, the worthlessness of myself and my shame. And on the other hand, I had this idea from this Kenyan prophet that, that, that God wanted to use me for something. And I could not reconcile these two ideas because why would God want to use me? I knew full well how broken I was. It didn't make any sense. And I began, I burst into tears and I began saying, why me? Why me? Why me? It made no sense. And then for the first time and probably the last time ever in my entire life, I heard or felt in every cell of my body the words, because you're my son. And in that moment, I understood grace. For the first time in my life, I had my shame and my brokenness fused with my calling and my purpose. I had never experienced such a thing because I always thought I had to deal with this before I could ever get this. But Jesus called me in that moment. And I'll tell you, I'd been a Christian my entire life, right? I mean, I would followed Jesus since I was a three years old or something like that. I had never really been in terrible situations. I never joined the, the mafia of any kind, especially not in Capernaum, right? I wasn't, I wasn't the mafia. But all of a sudden, in the awareness of my brokenness, I, I realized it wasn't enough for me to just be a Christian. In that moment, I gave my life to him. I gave my life to him. Wherever you want to take me, whatever you've got in mind for me, I'm in. I'm in. Because I understood grace for the first time time. Not when I had everything all together, but in that moment, in the shame, in the brokenness. Guys, I want to remind you of what I said before. Jesus calls the broken. Jesus calls the broken, including Matthew, including me. I tell you all of this because, again, I want you to know that if Jesus calls the broken, it includes you. You broken as you are, shame-filled as you are, this can be your story if it's not already. Jesus calls the broken. So is it your story? Is that where you are? Are you at a point where you can say, yes, I know that I've been called by Jesus to a greater purpose and I know he's done it despite my shame. Is that your story yet? Because if it's not, I want it to be. I want you to experience that. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a chance to just stare at all of this in the face. I got to do it by writing out a big sin list in Kenya, but I want you to think about for a moment your brokenness. How are you falling short? What is it that makes you unworthy? What's the brokenness inside of you that keeps you from saying yes to the call of Jesus? What are you ashamed of? Again, for me, it was the, the list of sins. For Matthew, it was being a tax collector in a time when they were not godly guys. What about you? What is your brokenness? Or 
Here's another way of looking at it. What about you? Is there anything about your life that other people despise? Or is there something about you that other people look down on or, or, or lift up their noses at? They don't want to be associated with you. Is there something about you? Or, or maybe not. Maybe you've got it all together. You're putting on a great show. You are all buttoned up and you look perfect. But you know that deep down in your heart, if people really knew what you were thinking, what you were uh, feeling, if they really knew who you were, what would they do? They'd call you scum. You know that in your heart. Whatever it is, what is your brokenness? It's when we face our brokenness and our sin and our shame and our guilt, it's when we look it square in the face that we can start to understand how, the, the, how Matthew must have felt on that day on the docks. Yeah, he's going about his business. He's, he's doing all the things, but he's full of shame. He's full of guilt. He knows he's unworthy. Do we know how unworthy we are? Because if we do, that's when it becomes all the more spectacular that Jesus turned to this broken man and said, follow me. It's spectacular. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly who he was calling. And Jesus knew that the ones most capable of healing this world are the ones who've experienced healing themselves. The ones most capable of offering grace are those who've experienced grace. And so he called Matthew, follow me. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. My friends, Jesus knows who you are. He knows all about you. He knows your guilt. He knows your shame. And yet he wants to follow you. You. He, he, he knows what you've done. He knows what you struggle with, but he wants to be associated with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to be close to you. He sees something in you. He sees something. He believes in you. His love for you is unfailing, and there's nothing you can do to change that. Jesus calls the broken. And Jesus is calling you. Take a moment. Close your eyes. Breathe. Place yourself in the story of Matthew's call and see this moment through his eyes. It's a hot morning on the docks in Capernaum. A shipment of wool from Golanitis just arrived. These sheep farmers are exhausting. Every time you tell them what the custom toll is going to be for their goods, they want to argue and haggle. That's not how things work. You know everybody hates tax collectors, but some days it just grates on you. Sure, sometimes you skim a little off the top, but everybody's got to eat. At least, that's what you tell yourself when you hear for the third time this week that you're the scum of the earth. Maybe they're right. Maybe you are scum. You know you haven't exactly been honest. You have a lot to be ashamed of. This is what's running through your mind as you sit down at your booth and gear up for another showdown with these farmers. Just then, you hear a bustle in the crowd to your left. You look up to see what's going on. Oh, it's Jesus. He's that rabbi everyone has been talking about. And, wait a second, 
He's heading right for you. For a moment, you panic. Is he about to unload on you like those Pharisees last week for being a traitor to Israel? Are you about to be some public object lesson? Is he going to expose your sin? But no, he's smiling. He walks right up to your booth. He extends his hand and locks eyes with you. You know everybody's staring, but for a moment, they all seem to fade away. It's just you and Jesus. And then he says the words that will change your life forever. Follow me. What do you feel in this moment? What's going through your head? What sin and shame do you feel define you? And how does it feel to know Jesus wants you to follow him anyway? Follow me. In the story, Matthew leaves it all behind and becomes a disciple of Jesus. What are you going to do? Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.